Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 122. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Blessings to you, Father. Avino Malkino, our Father, our King. Thank you for carrying us along through a difficult year. Um, now we are here at the beginning of this new year, 2021. Lord, now more than ever, we need to um, just focus on what is most important. Um, the things around us that are uh, elements of your kingdom. Um, we are here on earth, but you are here with us. We are citizens of your kingdom, and yet your spirit resides with us here on earth. Help us to understand uh, that all of the trials and the difficulties that we go through, all of the disappointments, uh, can all be um, a part of your plan, working its way th- in our lives and through our lives to bring about honor to your name and glory to your kingdom. Help us to focus on the bigger picture. Help us to remember that despite all of the ups and downs, despite all of the ins and outs, despite all of the the um, uh, failures uh, that we that we uh, experience, uh, that we have a Father in heaven who loves us, who has sent his spirit among us to remind us of the words of his Son, who dwells in us by his spirit. Bless you, Lord, for the wonderful uh, uh, opportunities that are waiting for us in this brand new year. Help us to go forward with a view towards um, your promises uh, and the blessed hope that we have in Messiah. Help us not to lose faith and not to lose sight. Uh, Help us to be grounded in the word. And uh, uh, importantly as well, Lord, help us to continue to to reach out to one another because um, at different points in time in our life, Lord, we need to, to lean on one another and to build one another up and to continue to encourage one another and comfort one another as we mourn loss of life, loss of family, loss of loved ones, um, and uh, those who are close to us. Uh, continue to raise us up, give us a voice of witness uh, to those around us, and we'll be careful to give you the praise and glory of Hashem Yeshua. Amen. These are the live internet studies that I bring to you. My name is Ariel Lyman Hanavi. I'm a Torah teacher at a real-life congregation in Thornton, Colorado. It is the harvest, and you can find us online at www.graftedin.com. I've got our website pulled up right now. I encourage you to visit us online as well as in person. We are conducting live services these days, but if you're not comfortable going out, well, then take a take advantage of our live streaming services. You can see on my screen right now, I've got recent sermons, uh, thumbnail, 
that uh, that you're seeing. Pastor Mark McClellan um, is the head pastor, and he's going through he's starting a brand new sermon, brand new series, character profiles, and he's starting with Joseph part one. We're going to learn about all of the uh, um, the uh, similarities between the, the man named Joseph in the Bible and our Messiah, Yeshua. So make sure you head on over to graftingin.com and um, catch all of the sermons that Mar- Master Mark puts out there. I've also got my own Torah teaching website at uh, tetzetorah.com. Um, you can find me online at www.tetzetorah.com. That's spelled T-E-T-Z-E. T-O-R-A-H dot com. And um, these are the live internet studies. Let me just jump to this part first. Uh, Live internet studies. Let me scroll down and just read you some of the announcements. This is episode number 122, as I mentioned during my prayer. January 2nd, 20, it says 2020. I just realized there's a typo. I forgot to change that. We're in 2021. And wow, what a year 2020 was, right? Um, Let's pray that this will be a more uh let's just pray it'll be a better year right 2021 let's 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 trust in our god for great things for this year uh the meeting times for uh, live internet studies are saturday evenings from 7 p.m to approximately 8 p.m central standard time and as i mentioned that's for um those of you primarily the united states if you're not in the united states but you're watching this youtube video then you want to adjust your clock against the um central standard time clock zone we're going to have an hour-long study tonight, and there's two primary segments. And the first segment, which is 30 minutes long, is entitled Romans 14 Unplugged, Feast and Fast and Food. Oh my, we're in part 40 for tonight. The second segment that we'll be uh, studying will be uh, exploring the Shema, discussions on the issues of Trinity, paper to Yahweh and Yeshua. We're in part 57 tonight. And later on in the video... In this uh, study, we'll watch a featured YouTube video from Deuteronomy and Leviticus entitled Love God, Love Your Neighbor as Yourself. As, of course, those of you who are in the uh, know are familiar that those are the two greatest commandments that Yeshua was quite when they asked him, what are, the, what are the greatest commandments? What is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. He quoted the Shema. And then he said, the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. And so that's what those two are. As I always mention, these particular studies are brought to you by Skype, and um, Skype is free, the accounts are free, the app is free. Go ahead and install it on your computer so you can join us for these uh, studies. But most importantly, you're going to need the group Skype link if you want to join up with us. Go to my website at tatesaytor.com, scroll to the very bottom of the website where that black section is that you can see, uh, where it says Weekly Parashar Archives. And... um, I'm sorry about that. In that section, right now, you can see there's a little icon. It looks like an email. Click that. It'll send me an email. Tell me you're interested in joining the Skype classes. I'm more than happy to send you the group Skype link. And while you're at it, while you're down there, look at the little yellow donate button there. If the Lord is blessing you to be a blessing to others, including people such as myself, then I'd be delighted to have you share your surplus with me. Uh, that's a way that you can share with me and be a blessing to me during these difficult times as well. Okay, As I mentioned, I've got my own website at tatesaytorah.com, and uh, as you can see on my screen right now, there are lots of resources that I make available for you for free, and I'm delighted to do so. Most of these are written commentaries, but uh, throughout my website, you'll find links to audio podcasts, which I upload to the iTunes store, as well as links to the YouTube videos that I upload to um, YouTube to my YouTube channel as well, which I'll promote here in just a moment. 
but um, uh, the, the links there are links to online studies and most of them are available online but if not you can click on the PDF version for most of them and download them to your computer and read them offline and things like that okay lastly during these announcements real quick before I jump into the study um, this is my YouTube channel you can find me online at www.youtube.com forward slash C for channel forward slash Tetsa Torah Ministries. Go to my YouTube channel and browse around. See what you like there and click through the videos. As you scroll up and down from the webpage, you'll find all the popular uploads, uh, things that people like to, to click on. Uh, the live internet studies uh, thumbnails are there. The exploring the Shema studies that we're going through right now. Um, and uh, what's on Paul's mind is kind of a study through the book of Galatians, a minute or two of the words, short, kind of inspirational type studies, average five minutes long. Hebrews Unplugged, a study I did a few years ago, had an, a, a, a fun time doing that. And then the uh, Torah Observant Shomer Mitzvot series, a little bit longer, Feast of the Lord, Mikra Kodesh, Holy Convocation series. And the last but not least, lots of um, playlists that I created uh, to help you navigate through uh, different Torah studies and things like that. And then if you look at the very bottom, there's some feature channels. There's The Harvest, which is my own home website. Shema Ministries, which is run by a pastor friend of mine who uh, used to uh, 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 attend The Harvest and now has his own ministry. Ascension Ministries, like, again, another one of the uh, former pastors who's uh, since gone on to, to have his own ministry. Messiah Matters is um, run by my good friend uh, Caleb Haig, who's son of Tim Haig, who's a popular teacher that I'm probably going to quote from tonight, one of my favorite tour teachers um, and a great resource there. Messiah Matters uh, is his uh, YouTube channel there. And then there's Beth L. Gibor. Many of you who watch these YouTube videos are familiar with um, my uh, continued references to uh, the family over there, my my home away from home, Beth El Gibor, B-E-G, with Rabbi um, Mark Schulman and Rabbi Eduardo. Uh, and so um, just give them, a, you know, when, when you go to my website, uh, and I forgot the last one here, Mishpat, Mishpat Vachesed Ministries, which is another great tour resource. Uh, and there's more there. If I were to click on the little arrow there, you can see more that I would load there. Um, but I'll, I'll promote those next week. But the point being is um, give those resources a look-see, right? Have a look at them. Um, click on them and you can um, uh, visit the YouTube channel and watch the videos and things like that. Um, uh, during these difficult pandemic times where many of us are locked inside, locked indoors, and uh, some of us are furloughed and unemployed, and I know looking for a job is a full-time job itself, but uh, if you've got time, make time to um, check out the various resources that are available for you on the line, on web, on the internet. Feed yourself and keep yourself um, in the know. Keep yourself uh, uh, connected to community, even if it's not community that you can see face-to-face. -face, make sure you stay connected, okay? Those are my... Um, uh, recommendations. All right, let's turn now to Romans 14 Unplugged, Feast and Fast and Food. Oh my, we're changing the format of my live internet studies for this brand new year. I'm going to try something a little different. I'm going to put the studies right up front at the beginning of the recording of the YouTube video and the iTunes podcast, and then I will push the uh, liturgy and the video 
towards the end of the study. And we'll see how that works out. Um, those of you who watch these YouTube videos uh, week after week, I would love to hear your uh, comments on the, the change of format. Format. Do you like the studies up front with the liturgy and the video at the very end? Or did you like it before the way I had the, the liturgy and the video and then I did the studies towards the very end? Let me know what you think. Put, put something in the comments below and I'll try to interact with you. I'll probably do this at least a few times, you know, maybe throughout the month of January. It's where you can, people can get a feedback or get a feel for what this uh, study's like. Also, how it's going to change up the way I edit things and see if it'll make it a little bit more efficient for me when I'm editing things so I can get these videos out to you much faster, okay? All right. I think most of my video, most of my tabs are loading up, but uh, this is the Romans 14 study, and we've been going through a study that I put together on my uh, website. It's available for free, and um, we're going through... Uh, let me just park out on this particular section for a second. We're going through um, these sections. We've been going through these questions, asking uh, questions of the text in this chapter. And we're in this section, who is the brother? And as I mentioned, this section on who is the brother is related to the same question that we asked uh, months ago, who are the weak in faith? And again, let me tell you just right up front, the traditional position on this particular chapter is that the weak in faith are Christian Jews who are part of the congregation that Paul's writing to, but their faith in Jesus is good, but their continued dependency on Torah puts them into a position where many Christians would call them weak. So if you read through your average Bible commentary, ask your average Bible um, teacher or pastor or seminarian, who were the weak people in Romans 14 that Paul was writing to? You're probably going to be told that they are Gentile, I'm sorry, they are Jewish Christians or Messianic Jews, what we would call them today, Jewish people who believe in Jesus, but they're still holding on to the Mosaic law. They're keeping kosher, they're keeping the festivals, they're keeping Seventh day Sabbath, and thus their continued preference for keeping Torah. Um, qualifies him under the label of weak. It gives him a, a status of weak. So it's this category of weakness that's attached to not necessarily their faith in Jesus, but attached to their um, uh, preference for keeping Torah uh, that gives the strong in the letter, i.e. Gentile Christians or anyone who believes in Jesus but doesn't follow after Torah, it gives these um, uh, other uh, uh, believers in Jesus uh, the stat status of weak. And what that ends up doing is it impacts the Jewish person with the idea that I need to change that status and grow, and grow up. I need to grow up in the Lord. I need to eventually carry on and move on to be strong like the other Gentile Christians in the group, which means I need to leave my Torah observance behind. I need to let that uh, uh, drop off and drop out of my life. Um, and it becomes a kind of an unspoken, um, uh, what do we say, uh, assumption in the, gr in the group that these weak people are going to grow up someday. But in the meantime, this, this traditional position goes on to say, let's not fight about this. Let's accept one another where we're at. We understand that maybe maybe I'm speaking as if I'm a Gentile Christian in the group. We understand these these Messianic Jews, you know, they came from a lifestyle of keeping Torah before they believe in Jesus. So they don't understand that we're free from the law, that we're no longer under the law, that we're under grace, and that we're no longer under the law of Moses, but we're now under the law of Christ. So we can we we have to kind of give them time to grow out of that old mindset and that old way of thinking and let them grow into the grace of, of Messiah. Give them time. Don't 
kick them out. They are believers. They're brothers, right? There, there's a link to brother. Um, they are brothers. They're believers. So um, Paul's going to tell us to not judge one another, but to accept one another because God has accepted us because of our position in Christ. So we've got to learn to live with our differences. We just accommodate one another. Let's not look down on one another. But at the end of the day, again, there's this underlying assumption that the weak are expected to leave that Torah stuff behind so that they can grow up in Christ. That's the general way that this passage is uh, articulated to most Christians who read it today. I have a big problem with that general position, uh, not least of which the fact that Paul would consider himself one of the strong, and yet Paul's a lifelong Torah keeper. So there's something wrong with the definition that we're carrying along with the weak in faith and how it's connected to brothers. So let's talk about what are the impacts, what is the impact to our messianic communities today if we really follow along with the idea that weak in faith are Christians or Jews who believe in Jesus but still follow Torah and how this is related to the idea of brother. I purport, and I'm telling you this up front so you can understand, I purport that the weak in faith are actually weak in their belief in Jesus, not weak in their faith in God or loyalty to Torah. Their weakness in faith in Jesus is described better by way of understanding that they're still deliberating on who who the identity of the Messiah is. They're open to the prospect that Jesus is that Messiah that they've studied about and that they've been hoping for, and they're going to dialogue, these unbelieving Jews of Paul's day, they're going to be dialoguing with Messianic Jews in their communities and with Christian Gentiles in their communities, and prayerfully they're going to come to a decision that Jesus is the Messiah that they've been waiting for. But until that time comes, they're, they have a faith in God, they're expressing a faith in God, and they're they're demonstrating a loyalty to Torah. So their weakness is not a position that's designed to be looked down upon per se. Simply, we just understand that they've not come to that decision and made that public profession of faith in Messiah, but they are part of our, our faith community. And so that's the that's the expanded uh, mindset that we need to approach this um, um, uh, chapter with. And how does that play into who is the brother? Well, if the brother is an unbelieving Jew, then it broadens our understanding of who Paul's faith community is. And hopefully, if we have time, we're going to talk about that tonight with this quote from Tim Higgs' book, um, The Mystery of, of Romans, or... Um, is it the Mr. Romans I want to quote from? I might want to quote from a different book. We'll see. Nevertheless, let's jump right into, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry about that. Uh, let's jump right into the study and look at some um, uh, some uh, a commentary, some notes from a gentleman um, that I've been borrowing his notes from uh, for quite a bit here. Uh, my page isn't loaded. <laughs> I apologize about that. Give me a second. My computer's not cooperating. There we go. Um, this is uh, Romans to the churches of the synagogues of Rome. This is Mark um, Nanos, who is a Jewish author. He's an historian. He's not a theologian, and he's not even a Messianic Jew. He's not a believer, as far as I understand his um, own um, profile. Uh, but he is a, a, he is a um, helpful author that's going to help us plug back into the historical context. And he also is able to get into the uh, situation that Paul faced, even though he's writing from the outside, he's able to plug us into what it would be like to be back in the first century. So we've read some of this last week and the week prior, and we're going to finish 
uh, the quote from uh, Mark tonight. Uh, so let me scroll down to the part that I want to read. Um, where do we leave off? Okay, here's where I want to read. Okay, this is the final paragraph of the section that I want to read. All right, he's going to describe for us the what I might call the impact of changing our paradigm or the way we view Paul. If we continue to read Paul as someone who's championing a law-free gospel for Gentiles and a weakness of Torah for Jews uh, and the champion of a new religion called Christianity, then it's going to shape the way that not only we read the, the scriptures, but it's going to shape the way that we interpret and implement that particular viewpoint in our own Messianic congregations and our own churches. We're going to continue to see that um, faith in Jesus trumps Torah obedience uh, to the point that Torah obedience needs to really be something that's uh, falls off, that drops off. It's part of an, an old dispensation. It's part of a, a bygone era. It's part of something. It's part of the old that's that's being transitioned out. It's part. It actually feeds into what is known as the replacement theology or supersessionism that's rampant in some parts of the church. Not thankfully and prayerfully, not all parts of the church uh, Christianity, um, but it's still very. Uh, uh, strong in many uh, uh, sectors of Christianity with this idea that the the church, the Gentile church has replaced Judaism and Christianity has replaced Judaism and the church has replaced Israel as the people of God and the, the law of Christ has replaced the law of Moses. That's the whole um, uh, law versus grace uh, argument all over again where in that little argument, unfortunately for the Jews, uh, they lose, right? It's a zero-sum game. Uh, where only one person wins. Uh, what, what we mean by zero sum. All right, um, let's read this quote from Mark uh, Nanos, and that'll just give you the idea of what's at stake here. All right, Mark says, uh, 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 Nanos says, what happens if we read Romans anew based on the presumption that the audience to which Paul addressed the letter met together as subgroups of the larger Jewish community or communities of Rome? Let's just stop and think about that for a second. Instead of automatically approaching Paul's letters as if he's writing to these Gentile churches who are disconnected from Judaism and separated from their uh, Gentile brothers or Gentile counterparts, whatever you want to label, you want to call them. Instead of thinking that he's writing to these completely separated groups, what if we were to let history teach us that actually the subgroups of the Christianities Right, we can't even really call them Christianities, but uh, the Gentile believers, the Gentile Christ followers. What if they were actually more connected to the Jewish community, larger Jewish communities than we have been taught? Do the features, Nano says, do the features of Paul's letter make sense when approached from this contextual vantage point? I submit that the answer to that question is yes. Besides avoiding the disapproval and dismissal of the value of Judaism, what might be at risk for Christian identity and guidance? Right. How does that impact us as Christians? I know it's a little unsettling and dis and uh, uh, uncomfortable to try and think about it this way, but just follow along with my study for a little bit, okay? In this essay, Nano says, we can only begin to explore why this approach is compelling in view of some of the historical and rhetorical data available, but it is my opinion, granted, as a Jew and an outsider, meaning it's not a believing Jew, it's not a Christian Jew, that the gains for Christians, let me scroll up a little bit, 
that the gains for Christians, including theological principles and spiritual guidance, will be enhanced rather than diluted when they are no longer tied to, listen to this, the negative binary where we have either-or categories traditionally posed in terms such as Christians or Jews, like Christians versus Jews, or Christianity versus Judaism, or Christ versus the Torah, freedom versus obligation, grace versus responsibility, faith versus works, that is, deeds and uh, verses and, and actions, moral versus ritual, spiritual versus physical, and so on and so on. So you understand, let me just pause and interject, the general dichotomy or standard way of, of approaching Pauline literature is that if we start with the premise or assumption that Paul made a break from his Judaism when he became a Christian and that he changed his name from Saul to Paul, right? He, Saul was the Jew and Paul is the Christian. And now he's writing from this vantage point of Judaism is, is out, Christianity is in, the law is out. Uh, the law of Messiah is in, the law of Moses is out, the law of Messiah is in, or the gospel is in, the Old Testament is out, the New Testament is in, the Old Covenant is out, the New Covenant is in, Israel is out, the church is in. I mean, I could go on and on with with the binary categories that uh, Nanos is trying to describe for us. And it's all cast in this either-or mindset right? As if you could only be a member of one of these groups. You either have to embrace Judaism of Paul's day or you embrace Christianity. You either um, submit to the law of Moses or you submit to the law of Christ. You either are under law or you're under grace. You're either part of the old covenant or the new covenant. You're either part of the synagogue or you're part of the church. Um, you understand uh, the, 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 the binary categories. And this is well known to Christianity down through the history, and it still continues on to this day. This is a mindset that, that unfortunately obfuscates and clouds the way Paul really was writing. We need to let Paul speak for himself and not um, impose, superimpose, anachronistic, that is out of place in time, right? Modern, put back on, lay, overlaid on top of, of uh, older historical uh, social uh, understandings of way, the, the way Paul was writing. So let's finish um, uh, Nano's quote here. It's not very long. We're going to start right there. Uh, in keeping with Paul's own arguments, Nano says, these categories that we're talking about are more realistically approached in terms of this and that rather than this or that terms. You understand what I mean? Paul was a Christian and he was a Jew. Paul embraced the law and he embraced the law of Messiah. Paul understood law and grace. Paul understood Israel's role as the elect and covenant partners, and he understood the grafted in branches, the remnant of Israel and the church, and their role as the elect part of the people group of God as well. Paul understood the relevancy of what we term the Old Testament, and he understood the relevancy of the letters that are being penned by himself, what would later on be, and along with the Gospels, the stories of Yeshua, that would later be called the New Testament. So, Paul didn't have to live in this 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 contest of this versus that, right? This or that, and that's a kind of a Greek mindset anyway, a Greek approach where we have a tension between, um, so we have a contest between this or that. Rather, the Hebraic worldview, the Hebraic mindset was well equipped to embrace 
concepts that seemed somewhat contradictory, contradictory at times, that seemed to, to, to kind of challenge one another, and yet were still um, both embraced as a this and that, right? Jesus is very God, and he is very man. He's 100% God, and he's 100% man. Paul didn't have to break Jesus and God apart into two separate pieces to figure out how they worked. Jesus is either God or man. No, no, no. For Paul, he can embrace them both. Jesus is Lord and God is Lord, right? The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God and he is a person who can be grieved and lied to. So, um, that's the, the approach that um, we're trying to work with. Let's continue with nanos. Emphasis within each category, including binary terms such as these, right, the ones that I just mentioned, will change the given variables of context, time, the participants involved, and so on. But the basis of Paul's beliefs and actions, his concepts of faithfulness to Torah and to Christ, right, notice, not faithfulness to Torah versus belief in Christ, rather both faithfulness to Torah and Christ, these were not conceptualized in a Christianity or Judaism framework. Paul did not have to wrestle and loose wrestle with and lose sleep at night over where should my loyalty be? Should it be with Judaism or should it be with Christianity? There was no Christianity like we know it today in Paul's day. Uh, we'll, we'll read about that here in a moment in a quote from Tim Haig. Or um, rather, for Paul, uh, Nanos concludes, those uh, and those under his influence, surprising though it may seem to many of us today, they were based on a notion that being a Christ follower was the ideal way to live out Judaism in the awaited age to come, which they believed had begun. So, as we continue to study through these notes with um, the material that I'm providing, as well as other authors that I'm going to bring in from time to time, then we're going to see that it's going to be much better for us today if we first peel back the layers of misconceptions surrounding Paul, his writings, his letter, his recipients, Paul's worldview, his socio-religious perspectives on things, allow Paul to speak for himself allows letters to speak within the worldview that they were written in, that's our interpretive starting point. That's the hermeneutic approach we want to start with. From there, we launch into practical applications for 21st century Messianic churches and communities. Omain? Omain. So that's the better way to look at this. Now, let me turn to um, Tim uh, uh, um uh, nope, we're, we don't want to look at Mystery of Romans tonight just yet. Let me jump over to uh, the Tim Haig. Uh, we're going to look at this uh, uh, quote from uh, Mark uh, Nanos' book, um, the, uh, um, the Mystery of Romans, where he talks about the brother. And we're going to uh, start reading. I'm just kind of giving you a preview of what we're going to be looking at. Uh, as I jump down to page, I think it's 108, where I want to start. Let me jump, go scroll past all these blank sec sections. I'm pulling this from a um, the online version of wow, didn't mean to go that far. From the online version of this book that's available in part in, in, in preview form from Google Books, and that's why there's all kinds of blank sections. But um, let me give me a second. Let me show you the page that we're going to start on and look at next week, and then we'll conclude it next week. I guess maybe it was close to the starting point. Apologize about that. I know it. There we go. So uh, next week, we'll start in this section. The weak were definitely Jews, but were they Christians? Again, this is tied to the brother. If the brother is a brother Christian and not an unbelieving Jew, well, then the weak were definitely 
Gentile, uh, uh, Jewish uh, Christians who were still holding on to Torah, even though they believed in Jesus. And we need, we as strong need to, um, we need to accept them, not judge them, but we need to help them understand that their weakness is something that they don't want to hold on to. They want to eventually grow out of that weakness. So we'll continue to look at that next week. But today, Tonight, let's conclude by reading some of Tim Haig's uh, book. Uh, this is from a book called The Letter Writer, and this is available at uh, torresource.com, uh, but you have to purchase the book, and I, I, I own the, the, the hard copy of the book as well, but I'm, I've got the PDF pulled up so that we can pull a, um, a, some excerpts from Tim Haig's book. All right, let's drop down to um, the chapter, chapter three, Paul's Theology Overview of Some Key Issues, and look how Tim Haig describes Paul's faith community. We won't read all of this tonight, just maybe a few paragraphs, okay? Let me just read. This is Tim Haig, uh, starting right here. Quote, The picture we have painted of the Apostle Paul shows him to be thoroughly Jewish, a Pharisee trained at the feet of Gamaliel, and a dedicated follower of Yeshua, called to be his apostle. Since it is easy in modern times to divorce Paul from the Jewish world of which he was a part, it is also easy to envision Paul within the circle of the Christian church rather than in the synagogue. This is why we must ask ourselves the question of his faith community. We cannot take it for granted that we understand um, what this was, for if we do, we run the risk of anachronistically picturing Paul's faith community as the contemporary Christian church. The facts are really quite simple. Christianity as we know it in our modern world simply did not exist in Paul's day. There were no buildings with steeples and crosses filled on Sunday for services. There, uh, What is more, the scriptures that came to be called the New Testament did not yet exist, and therefore exhortations and sermons from the Gospels or Epistles were impossible. Worship services consisting of choirs, offerings being gathered, special music announcements, and short homilies by a preacher had not yet been invented. There were no confessional booths, no rosaries, no baptismal fonts, no Eucharistic services. Sunday school, youth group meetings, and single gatherings were unknown. There were no Christmas celebrations, no vacation Bible schools, and no summer camps. No revival crusades were known, nor were miracle rallies or mass healing crusades something the faith community of the first century experienced. In short, those things that many people would list as characteristic activities and structures of the modern Christian church were unknown in Paul's day. Now, I'm not trying to offend anyone with um, quoting from Tim Haig here. What I'm trying to do is help us to get back into the mindset and the worldview of Paul's day so that we can begin to answer these important questions about who are the weak in faith, and is it really possible and indeed probable that the brothers that Paul addressed throughout his letters, they were in fact Christians many times. The context demands that we say that they're brothers. But at other times, the context allows for us to see that brothers includes a larger community that Paul envisioned where Jew and Gentile believing and unbelieving, yet both part of what we might call the elect or um, the family of God, were um. Uh, uh, working together. They weren't always agreeing with one another. Of course, there were differences because of Messiah and other uh, uh, things, uh, ethnicity not being the least of them. But let's continue to let Tim Haig challenge us with this uh, particular um, scope of, of uh, looking at Paul's letters. Tim Haig continues, if Paul did not go to church as we know it today, what did his faith community look like? What activities characterize the body of believers of which Paul was a member? Now, let me pause again. Paul, I submit, 
did not feel that he made a made a break from the Jewish the larger Jewish community. And indeed, the church groups that he wrote to existed within this larger Jewish community. So let's keep listening. Uh, Tim Haig says, first, Paul did not consider the synagogue his opponent. How could he? No other valid faith community yet existed, right? I mentioned this a few weeks back. There was no First Baptist Church on the corner. There were no Catholic cathedrals for him to send his readers and his listeners to. There were no Presbyterian churches, no Methodist churches, no Lutheran churches, no um, uh, Episcopalian churches. There were no charis- uh, charismatic denominations that he could send his, his groups to. Um, there weren't even any... Islamic mosques he could send his groups to, uh, thankfully, right? There were no Seventh-day Adventist churches on the corner. There were no um, Mormon temples or, or anything like that. Um, and in his part of the world, there was probably very little, if any, Buddhist temples or, or, or any other such Eastern religions that were invading into the Middle East at that point in time. So the point is, from Paul's vantage point and social groups, as we're going to begin to read here, there were basically the Jewish places of worship, which would have been houses of worship like synagogues or just groups gathering together, what we, what we mean by this term, synagogue, uh, the Greek word, which means just a gathering of people, uh, houses of prayer, uh, places of worship. And then there were the pagan centers and pagan temples and pag- pagan uh, places to gather together. That was the, 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 the binary choices that were present in Paul's day. You either worship the one God of Israel, who is the one true God of all mankind, or you embrace the pantheon of paganism that uh, uh, permeated the culture, the Greco-Roman culture of Paul's day. So let's let um, Tim keep uh, explaining this to him. While surely there were differences among the Judaisms of Paul's world, the synagogue and Jerusalem temple marked the location of study and worship for all who believed in the God of Israel. Surely the emerging Christian churches embraced the God of Israel. They did not embrace another God, did they? Silence. Yeah, that's right. There were no other gods that Paul was expecting them to embrace. Let's keep reading. Tim Hay, uh continues, All other temples and places of worship were pagan. So, this is the world we have to understand. We should remember that the designation synagogue in the early first century referred most often to the gathering of people, not the buildings, something I was mentioning earlier. In fact, archaeological data have shown that buildings regularly used by the synagogue were called um, proscue, I'm sorry, prosuke, places of prayer, and that private homes were often used by synagogues rather than public buildings. And then I'll read maybe one more section, and then we'll... Um, uh, break off and we'll pick this up tonight. Being the place of prayer, talking about the, the synagogue as well as the temple, being the place of prayer, we should not be surprised to find the synagogue as the regular place of Paul's worship and study, as well as his entrance into the various communities he visited. Thessalonica, Acts 17, 1 through 9, Berea, Acts 17, 1 through 14, Athens, Acts 17, 16 and 17, all hear Paul first in their synagogues. Paul's focus in Corinth was the synagogue, Acts 18, 1-4. Likewise, his focus of activity in Ephesus was the uh, synagogue community, Acts 18, 19, and 19, 8. Apollos preached in the synagogue, Acts 18, 26. And even the final chapter of Acts relates that the local leaders of the Jews in Rome came together to hear him out, perhaps in their place of prayer, Acts 28, 17-22. And when they respond to Paul's message, it is clear that they recognize the sect of which Paul was a member, not as something outside of Judaism, 
but as a part of it. We'll stop there tonight with the Romans 14 study. So I'm just giving you this idea that when I talk about the weak in faith being unbelieving Jews, meaning unbelieving as in Messiah yet, but they're still part of this broader faith community that has access and interaction with both Messianic Jews and Christian Gentiles, it should not sound strange to you. Likewise, when I purport that the brother in Paul's purview at any given time, depending on the context, could include the brother unbelieving Jew who is within the same scope of the listening of the letter as it's being read in a synagogue setting or a home church setting or some setting where we have Jews both believing and unbelieving and Gentiles who are largely believing, but there's still some what we might call God-fearing Gentiles or um, uh, uh, Jewish wannabes, kind of you know people who are attracted to Judaism. I say Jewish wannabe, I don't mean a bad way, but people who are who are attracted to the religion of Judaism that we're all mo- uh, interacting together. Don't think it sounds strange. Okay, we have to go back to history to understand from the vantage point that Paul's writing. We'll pick this up next week, and uh, maybe we'll conclude it next week. Maybe we won't. I don't want to rush through this part because this really is the background to understanding the instructions that we're going to be reading through uh, when we hear Paul saying, you know, one man is th- is picks one day, one man picks another day. Each one should be fully convinced, but don't judge one another in the food or drink or things like that. If he's talking about Christianity versus Judaism, well then, yeah, we can see how, how unfortunately... Um, uh, Judaism judged Christianity and Christianity judged Judaism and it sounds like neither one of those groups really respected Paul's admonition not to judge one another. But if we can understand it from a different perspective where faith in God leading to loyalty to Torah cannot be judged because that's the, the starting point towards faith in Messiah then we can better understand why that judgment is so grievous to, uh, to each other. Alright, that'll do it for the Romans 14 study. All right, let's turn now to exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. Um, This part of the study isn't as long as the Romans 14 study, probably maybe 10, 15 minutes at the most. And then remember, with the new format, after exploring the Shema, we'll turn to the um, liturgy, which will also be short, and then we'll watch the video for the final part of our study night. We're in this study that I wrote called Exploring the Shema Discussions on the Issues of Trinity. And as I drop drop down to the very bottom of the Study, there's a chart that is put together by Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry, otherwise known as CARM, and we've been working our way through this table of different um, uh, titles and attributes that are that are uh, understood to apply to God and to the persons of the Godhead. And with this concept in mind, um, this helps us to understand that as we approach this topic of the identity of God, the nature of God, and uh, the Trinity and things like that, it's best understood when viewed through the lens of the entire scope of the Bible from starting to ending, realizing that there are uh, titles and descriptions that are given to God that are um, uh, 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 played out uh, by the different persons that all belong to the one being known as God. And that stretches our imagination a bit, I understand, and our understanding of the way things should be working. But what I want to do before I jump into the table, this week only, I don't think I'm going to get to any scripture references. What I want to do for us is take a step back into this new year, as we're starting out this study for this new year, 2021. Um, I want to remind us of these concepts that that are described by Matt Slick and Carm as um 
ontological trinity and economic trinity, because this is how we actually interact with God's identity in the Bible. Sometimes we see God's identity um, played out for us and it gives us a peek into the makeup of how God uh, uh, deals with uh, I'm sorry, how, how God is, can be understood from our vantage point, even though we have so much, so many limitations. And, but it's a peek into the ontology, meaning the study of, of the makeup or the nature of something. Let me just click on my little dictionary and give you an, a, a definition. Ontology. Um, it is the branch of metaphysics dealing with the nature of beings, a set of concepts and categories in a subject area or domain that shows their properties and the relations between them. So ontology or ontological, what is God made up of, right? What are his part? What are the sum of his parts? Uh, if we could say such a thing, um, but comparatively, we're also, as we're reading through the Bible, we encounter God's dealings with mankind through history and the roles and functions that the persons of God play. And this helps us to get a glimpse into the economic aspect of the economies of God. So I'll let Matt Slick, Slick speak for himself. So let's turn to God. I'm sorry. Is this? Yes, this is uh, Matt. No, I'm sorry. I apologize. This is not CARM. <laughs> um, this is gotquestions.org. Great website, by the way. Great resource. I mean, just tons of questions and answers. Uh, some of them trivial, some of them a little more complex. Right now, we're going to be looking at this question that's put forth on the uh, uh, gotquestions.org um, website. What is the ontological trinity, sometimes known as the eminent trinity? So we'll take the next, say, 10 or 15 minutes to read both of these articles. I can read both. They're very short. I can read both of them in one setting. So let's read both of these tonight, all right? Starting right here with the question. Question, what is the ontological trinity or the eminent trinity? All right? And we're just going to deal with uh, uh, this one first. Answer, in their discussion of the trinity, theologians have developed a number of terms to explain as precisely as possible what God is like. When someone speaks of the ontological trinity, also known as the eminent trinity, it is in reference to the nature of God. As I mentioned, um, what is God made up of? How is he put together? They give us a definition as well. Ontology is a philosophical study of the nature of being. The ontological trinity refers to the being or nature of each member of the trinity, in nature, essence, and attributes, each person of the Trinity is equal. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit share the same divine nature and thus comprise an ontological Trinity. One being, whereas Dr. James White is fond of saying, one what, but three who's, right? The teaching of the ontological Trinity says that all three persons of the Godhead are equal in power, glory, wisdom, etc. So we don't have any contest going on when we're talking about what is God made up of? How is he put together in terms of being? Let's continue. The ontological Trinity is also something called the essential Trinity. It is often mentioned in conjunction with the economic trinity, which we're going to look at shortly, a term that focuses on the relationship within a trinity and each person's role in creation and salvation. That's important for us during these studies as well. They continue, the term ontological trinity focuses on who God is. The term economic trinity focuses on what God does. Both of these aspects of understanding God are important for us as we interact with skeptics, 
and um, opponents to the historical Orthodox understanding of Trinity. It's important for us to keep these two uh, in view because oftentimes you'll hear objections to the nature of God, uh, and that sounds like an ontological objection, but in reality it's probably maybe just simply an economic objection that's being confused with ontological terminology. It's being um, uh, muddled or uh, what we say obfuscated or something like that. So it's care- you have to be careful when we're talking to people about the nature of God and discussions on the issues of Trinity. You have to perhaps maybe um, remind people or school them a little bit. Do it gently, right? Don't sound like you're a Mr. Know-it-all, but who God is and what God does are sometimes differing topics that help us to understand that, that Jesus is God, but the Son is not the Father. We're going to see this little uh, uh, badge here in a moment as I'm relating, uh, referencing into it. But let's continue with um, our, our look into this uh, topic here. The ontological trinity is basic Christian doctrine and is foundational to all Christian belief. John 10:30 says that Jesus and the Father are one, by which is meant that they are one that they are of one nature. So it's an ontological statement. In Matthew 28:19, Jesus tells us to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, clearly equating the three persons of the Godhead, right? Notice uh, careful Greek students and even in the English you can see this, baptizing in the name singular of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not in the names plural. And we'll look at that verse in the Greek uh, in a different study. And then this particular website, GodQuestions.org, shows us this particular symbol of the Trinity, which they think is uh, um, one of the best ways to represent it. So let me click on it, and it's too big, so we don't want that. Um, but I'll blow this up in my post-production. But you can see uh, in this particular study, uh, it shows that uh, the Son and the Father and the Spirit are all God. That's what they mean by the is part, the little uh, pathways pointing to is God. Yet on the outside uh, of this particular, the Son is not the Father, is not the Spirit, is not the Son. And so the inner connections point to the ontology of God, and the outer circle expresses the economy of God. So having said that, Let's turn now to the second part of this of this particular uh, discussion. What is the economic trinity? All right, this is again the same website, uh, uh, gotquestions.org. Question, what is the economic trinity? All right, let's let them answer for us. Answer, the trinity is one of the most complex concepts in the Bible and nigh inexplicable. All right, will be what I call ineffable, unable to explain with your mouth. That's what I mean by ineffable. We know that God is one, right, Deuteronomy 6.4, and we know that he exists in three persons, Matthew 28, 19. By the way, Deuteronomy 6, 4 is known as the Shema in Jewish circles. And that's why this study is called Exploring the Shema Discussions on the Issues of Trinity. They go on to say, It is a paradox, but that is the reality of who God is. Theologians early on in the Christian history developed terms and definitions that parse out various aspects of the Trinity. The term economic Trinity is one of these terms. Let's continue. The term economic and economic trinity comes from the Greek word oikonomia, which means literally household management. The economy of a household includes the assigning of roles of jobs within the family. The economy of a home is related to its efficiency. To be clear, oikonomia is never used in reference to the trinity in scripture. 
we refer to the economic trinity when we discuss the unique relationships among the three persons of the trinity. They continue, the economic trinity is often discussed in conjunction with the ontological trinity, we just read that, right? A term that refers to the co-equal nature of the persons of the trinity. The term economic trinity focuses on what God does. Ontological trinity, by comparison, focuses on who God is. So let me just pause again. When you're having discussions, when you, a Trinitarian Christian, are having discussions with Unitarians or Oneness theologians or Oneness Pentecostals or Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or someone who doesn't hold to the classical Orthodox Trinitarian perspective, be careful when they're bringing up passages after passages that say, well, God can't be Jesus and Jesus can't be God and the Holy Spirit can't be God or God can't be Trinity based on, and they bring out X number of verses. Be careful to sense that there's often a mixing up and an overlapping without any sort of um, organization to passages out of the Bible that sometimes um, uh, convey the ontological aspect of God and other passages that convey the economic aspect of God. So um, if you're not aware of that, then you'll be confused and you'll, you'll, you'll misunderstand the passages and you'll misunderstand the verses that they're reading. So let's keep reading. Taken together, these two terms, right, ontological and economical, they present the paradox of the Trinity, which is this, the Father, Son, and Spirit share one nature, right, one what, but they are different persons and have different roles. Three who's. The Trinity is both united and distinct. Let's keep reading. Like I said, this is a short article. So we can finish this tonight. They go on to say that their distinctions from among three persons of the Trinity is clear from Scripture. For example, each person has a slightly different role in the salvation of mankind, even though it's one God. Listen to this. Our salvation is based on the Father's power and love, John 3.16 and 10.29. The Son's death and resurrection... 1 John 2, 2 and Ephesians 2, 6, and the Spirit's regeneration and seal, Ephesians 4, 30 and Titus 3, 3, 5. So you understand how the persons are all working together for the single salvation of an individual. One God receiving the glory, yet three persons interacting with humanity in this um, uh, uh and it's a, a task of salvation. They go on to say, the different tasks the Father, Son, and Spirit perform help inform our understanding of the economic trinity. So don't be confused. And don't let someone confuse you by telling you, oh no, God, Jesus can't be God because of, and then they start describing some economic function. Right? They're confusing the roles and functions of Jesus with the role and function of the Father, failing to realize that behind the scenes, the, the ontology and the, na the nature of God is shared by Jesus. Let's continue. There's also a voluntary subordination among the Trinity, in that the Father sent the Son, John 6.57, the Father and the Son send the Spirit, John 15.26, and the Spirit will, will speak only of what he hears, John 16.13. So understand the subordination when it comes to the economy of God. There's not a subordination in the ontology of God, and he's going to be, he's going to explain this a little bit later, I believe. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are ontologically equal, but they are economically distinct. So don't 
fall for the uh, error known as the subordinationism, where the sun is a subordinate god, like a lesser god, a demigod, a mini-god, a mini-me, right? Jesus is not a subordinate god to the greater god known as God the Father. That's not the, the relationship that that uh, the persons of the, the of the Godhead share with one another when we're talking about ontology. When we're talking about economy, yes. When we're talking about ontology, no. So we have to be careful to distinguish which argument we're having or discussion we're having when we're in dialogue with people who don't agree with the position that we ourselves hold. Let's let them continue. That is, they have different roles, and those roles involve relationships that can best be described as superordinate and subordinate. So both are in play at any given time. Remember what I talked about, how that Paul was able to embrace uh, this and that worldview because of his upbringing as a Hebrew. In Hebrew concept, to understand that Jesus and to embrace the fact that Jesus is very God, ontologically, yet at the same time, the, the son is not the father economically was no problem for Paul. Understand what I mean? He can embrace the, the tension of Jesus being called Lord just like Hashem being called Lord, and yet at the same time, the son is the one who hung on the cross for Paul's sins, not the father. All right, let's continue. Let's finish up. Uh, they conclude, the perfect relationships within the Trinity are difficult to understand, yet they are what all humanity is drawn toward. Perfect love and perfect fellowship exist within the economic Trinity. In fact, um, this is another uh, argument from a Trinity Trinitarian perspective, is that unless God was made up of the three persons, eternally these three persons, then God himself could not be described as love because love requires um, uh, action directed towards another object of to, to, to be the recipient of love. In other words, love cannot be empty. And if God has not did not eternally exist in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, then how can he eternally be love if there was no other person for, um, if there were no other persons to share the love between them as this economy? Understand the argument of logic that I'm describing there? God is love, the, the Torah tells us, the Bible tells us. And yet, if God eternally existed as alone as the Father before the Son was created or the Spirit was created, then how could God be love and how could he love himself alone? I know some people are going to object and say, well, we are, we're told to love ourselves. Okay, it's not quite the same argument, and we can have this discussion a little bit later. But um, for now, I just want to introduce that concept. Uh, they go on to say, in his love, God draws us into fellowship with himself. Praise him for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Spirit that, that Paul uh, tells us about in 2 Corinthians 13, 14. And then they go on to say that below is the best symbol of the Trinity that we're aware of. Click to expand, and we see that same little symbol that I mentioned earlier, and I'll blow this up in post-production so you can see this a little bit more clearly. So that's going to do it for a look at ontological trinity versus or compared to economic trinity. Just be careful when you're having discussions with people who don't hold to the same trinity position that you do, that often, that you do, that often there's this um, confusion between the ontology of God, what he is made up of, and the economies of God, the persons and the roles and functions that they play amongst one another. And holding these two um, categories in balance is going to help us better understand the Bible from beginning to end. O main, O main. 
let's finish up tonight's study with our um, liturgy. Let's turn to the liturgy real quick. We won't uh, wax long in this part of our study. We're in the closing part of our hour-long study for tonight. Let's close with the Birkat HaTorah, the blessings for learning the Torah. Uh, I'll just read the... Um, I think I'll read the Hebrew first, then I'll go back and read the English. I'll just read it in the same order that it shows up on this page. This is from HebrewForChristians.com. Great website, great resource if you're trying to study Hebrew, learn Hebrew, or just become familiar with it, okay? The Hebrew says, Israel. The final part reads Barukata Adonai Elohenu Melaka Olam Asher Bahar Banumi Kol Haamim Vanatan Lanu et Torato Barukata Adonai Noten Ha Torah. And then the third section reads Iverecha Adonai Vishmarecha Yarodanai Panaiv Elecha Vuhunecha Yis Adonai Panaiv Elecha Vayasem Lecha Shalom. Here's the translation into English. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us to engross ourselves with the words of Torah. Please, Lord our God, sweeten the words of your Torah in our mouths and in the mouths of all your people Israel. May we and our offspring and the offspring of your people, the house of Israel, may we all together know your name and study your Torah for the sake of fulfilling your desire. Blessed are you, Lord, who teaches Torah to his people Israel. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who chose us from all the nations and gave us the Torah. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. May the Lord bless you and keep watch over you. May the Lord make his presence enlighten you. And may he be kind to you. May the Lord bestow favor on you and grant you peace. Let's read the blessings for the Brit Chadashah, the New Covenant or the New Testament. First, there's a quote from Jeremiah 31, 31, which in Hebrew says, The English says, Behold, the days are come, or behold, the days coming. Saith the Lord that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. The blessing, which I'll read in Hebrew, reads, I'm sorry, the uh, translation, which is right down here, says, Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who gave to us the Messiah, Jesus, and the commandments of the new covenant. Blessed art thou, Lord, giver of the new covenant. And then let me read a passage out of Romans, uh, which was the Romans 14 study that we're studying, and then I'll close with the blessing after the reading, the Brit Chadashah. This particular um, passage is Romans 14. This will be the Greek rendering for us tonight. I'm only going to read the short uh, 10, 11, 12, 13, those four verses. All right, so starting right there. 
Uh, the English says, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Romans 14.10. Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Do you suppose Paul's talking about the brother Jew as well as Gentiles, both uh, part of the faith community? Some being believers, but others not. But all laying hold of the one covenant faith of God and espousing to the um, community of faith uh, as expressed by the scriptures of Israel and the people of Israel and things like that. Verse 11, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. Verse 12, so each of us will give an account of himself to God. And verse 13, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a fellow Jew or Gentile who lays hold of faith in God, even if he hasn't laid hold faith in Messiah just yet. Yes, I'm, I'm extending my long paraphrase there. Really, he just says hindrance of a way of a brother. All right, let's go back over on the right side of the page and uh, read the Greek. Let's read right there. All right. Uh, the Greek says in verse 10, Su de tikrines ton adelphan su, e kai su ti exuthenes ton adelphan su, pantes gar parastesamatha to bemati tu theu. Verse 11, Gegraptai gar zo ego lege kurias hati emoi, kampse pan ganu kai, pasa glosa exa mala gesetai to theu. Verse 12, Araun hekastos, hemon peri hautu, lagan dose totheo. And verse 13, Miketi un alelus crinomen, ala tuta crenate, malanto me tithenai praskamato adelfo e scandalon. Now, let's close with the blessing after reading the Brit Chadashah. The, English, the, the Hebrew says, Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Asher Natan Lanu HaDavar HaEmet, V'chaye Olam Nata Batochinu, Baruch Adonai Noten HaBrit HaChadasha. The English says, Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who gave to us the word of truth and planted everlasting life in our midst. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the new covenant. Let's close with the, um, the video for tonight, okay? You guys ready? Here we go. Welcome to A Minute or Two with the Word. I'm your host, Torah teacher Ariel, where every week or so, we take a look at a relevant passage of Scripture together as Jews and Gentiles in Messiah. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. There's little or no disagreement over the concepts explained by these mitzvot. Love God, love your neighbor, used by Yeshua and at least the former, known in Jewish circles as the Shema, which means to hear. Every Jew knows that these verses are not the whole of the Torah. They are simply the hallmark of the Torah, the cornerstone of keeping the mitzvot. This is what Yeshua meant when he said that all of the law hangs on these two. 
Anyone who correctly understands these two commands is well on his way to keeping any of the rest that may apply to him. Notice the context of the complete dialogue transaction in the corresponding scripture Mark 12, 28-34. The teacher of the law is said to have been not far from the kingdom of God. Do you see that the new command that Yeshua gave is the essence of the covenant that he ratified with them? Yeshua was stressing covenant faithfulness as it originates with a renewed heart. It's best to understand that the term Old Covenant was really Shaul's shorthand for an unregenerate state of being. Thus, Yeshua was imparting the practical knowledge of the ability and responsibility to walk into Torah now that God has opened the eyes of the blind. Be not controlled by your old nature that is old covenant or hardened heart. Rather, be ye controlled by the Spirit. And that'll do it for the video, and that'll do it for our study. Let's close in prayer. Abba, I bless your name. I thank you for the study. I thank you for the students who have joined me week after week. I pray that you'll bless them and comfort them. I pray that you'll continue to, to fill them with your goodness and with your mercy and with your precious Holy Spirit. Draw us close to you, Lord. Help us to understand that you are a loving Father. You care for our needs. You understand where we're at. You, you know our pain and our suffering. You know the losses that we experience in life. You know, the, the, the um, struggles that we go through on a daily basis. Be with us, Lord. Continue to raise us up and strengthen us during these difficult times. Continue to, to give us a hope beyond hope, helping us to, to affirm with a certainty that Yeshua is Lord and that He is the one who is preparing a place for us and that He is the one that goes with us on a daily basis. Help us to avail ourselves of that relationship with our Lord. Give us a, a desire to press in, to know Him more, to, to, to seek His face, to, to, um, to spend time with Him, to soak in His Spirit, to know that He is our God, He is our Lord, He is our Master. He is the one who sets us free. He is the chain breaker. He is the one that makes all things possible. He is the yes and the amen. Bless you, Lord, for sending your Son. Thank you for his faithfulness, and thank you for sending the Holy Spirit to cause us to fellowship with one another, even across the miles. Raise each and every one of us up and give us a voice of witness in these dark times that we're living in. Continue to keep us safe from the pandemic that's right at our doors. Continue to help us to, to know that even though we've lost loved ones that were in the Lord, that one day we'll be able to be with them again and see them again and, and fellowship with them once again. Uh, well, thank you, Lord, for uh, the continued study. Um, that is before us uh, as we go through the week, the challenges that await us, uh, bring us back together once again next week for another uh, wonderful Torah study. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory Bashim Yeshua. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to 
love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. 